What's up, my fellow lionesses and lions? Welcome to the Project Lioness podcast. We are here to disrupt the mainstream narrative when it comes to health, holism, and human consciousness. We are here to share bold truths about health and life from a female perspective. This episode is brought to you by our team, Inspire Co., where we stand for your health being inspired by choice rather than being inhibited by chance. Thank you for being here and joining in on these raw, real, and powerful conversations. We hope our show brings you inspiration and empowerment to overcome challenges, reclaim your life, and ultimately pursue your mission with power, purpose, and play. Now, let's get into the episode. Hello, everyone. What is up, party people? Welcome to the Project Lioness podcast. Ashley here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Just me today, going to do a solo episode. I'm at my house surrounded by my three cats. So if you hear any fun cat stuff in the background, that's definitely what's going on. Um, It's really sweet, actually, to have them all around. I'm sure those of you with animals know, like, They're just kind of like chilling with me, like my friends sort of surrounding me. So this is kind of a neat place to record an episode in, especially um, this episode today, um, just to give a little bit of a heads up, um, just to let everybody know what space we'll be entering today. It's going to be a a little bit more emotionally difficult episode today. Lots of um, talking about my story and my relationship um, with how I got to where I am today Um, So there will be a good bit of talk about sexual abuse, talk about physical abuse, um, eating disorders, and just if you're not in that space today, if that energy is going to hit you in a way that's um, not really aligned with what you're looking for, I would definitely skip this episode. (laughs) So I will, of course, not be going into like graphic details or anything, but I think sometimes it's just enough to hear um, that kind of vulnerability out of someone and just have it be not great for you. And that's totally fine if that's where you're at today. So I would go ahead and skip this episode if that's you. But if you are open to holding space for me to discuss this, then I'm honored. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. So like I said, it'll be really nice to be in my own home environment and have my cats around me for a little bit of familiarity and support. So I'd love to dive right in um, and just kind of get into it. I think <laughs> when talking about something like this, it's kind of like, oh, man, uh, how do I start? Where do we go, right? Um, and I promise the end of this ep- towards the end of this episode, we're going to be going over um, a lot more positive strategies and things that we can use um, to navigate through these things. Because even if your story isn't my story, Um, surely everybody has been through trauma in some way or another and just looking at different strategies to apply to your life now so you can really um, take your power back, right? And we talk a lot about that um, in the office and we talk a lot about that in just empowering women. So it's really important to me. That's, That's sort of why I wanted to do this episode. So again, it's Ashley here and I just... um. Yeah, I'm probably going to be just pausing a lot, which is really uncomfortable for me. You're probably going to hear a lot of ums, not normally the way that I speak, but I'm just kind of gearing myself up for a pretty vulnerable moment. So I I appreciate your patience in that regard. So I think we'll just start off. um, We're going to go pretty far back, actually. I think it's important to understand 
some of the later things that happened in my life by starting with the beginning. Oh, and I did want to mention, not totally not stalling. I think this is relevant. <laughs> um, I am doing this because I want people in general, but especially women, but really anyone who's experienced trauma to really understand that there is power in stepping out of your shame and into your story, right? And the story that we tell is incredibly important, right? What, what we tell ourselves, what we tell other people about our lives is what we are. That makes our reality. Our stories are our reality. And if I live in shame and don't speak out my truth and don't open that avenue for other people, then ultimately I think there's a part of healing that can't be done. Um, at least I believe it to be true that way. So this episode for me is hopefully really helpful, empowering to other people, especially with the strategies that you can um, implore in your own life. But ultimately, I really hope that people hear this episode and go, you know what, I don't have to hide my truth, my story. This is who I am. This is what happened to me. And it makes me, you know, this beautiful, wonderful human being today, right? So I just think it's really important that we give people an avenue to share that story without shame. And the powerful healing that comes from that is just incredible. All right, let's dive in. So I, um, I didn't have the world's best childhood. <laughs> I, don't, I think many of us would probably feel that way. Um, I was first sexually abused when I was about four, maybe five years old. Uh, difficult to remember exactly. I, I feel like closer to five. Um, and it was obviously at the time, and even now as an adult, I struggle to really be able to understand what really happened in that situation, right? Trauma does funny things to our brains, and I'll be referencing that a lot through this episode. Traumatic memories are not, are normally not um, memories that you can just see clearly, scene by scene, and every possible thing, right? That's not the norm for um, traumatic memories. Normally, you'll get to get fragments and pieces of something that you know what happened, but getting the whole view is almost challenging. It's all in there. It's not like you've forgotten any of it, really, um, but your brain is trying to protect you in that way. So uh, I don't have a ton of details about that, but I do know that that was the first time that I was sexually abused, and it was confusing. And, and I don't um, because of that, I really don't have a lot of memories from being a kid. And we'll see that the trauma just kind of kept piling on. And that makes sense because brains that are stressed aren't really storing brains in long-term memory. Um, you're just kind of like have the short-term memory situation. We do know now, of course, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, that just because my memory doesn't have all of the details stored, my physical body definitely does. And we're going to talk a lot about that later, um, about how these kind of traumas from my early life stacked up and found them their way into my body. Um, so yes, yeah, so that happened four or five years old. Um, I have really not a lot of memories from being a kid. I, I attribute that to the level of trauma that I experienced at such a young age. So we'd have to skip ahead uh, minus the very, I played a lot of sports. So I have some memories of like really great tournaments or awards that I won from ages, you know, maybe like seven to 12. Um, and then 12 is, I think, where things really 
picked up. I, I <laughs> what's a good word for that? I, Twelve years old is um, things are really hard, right? And I think that's already a really difficult time for people in general. Middle school kids can be really cruel in general. Um, luckily, I didn't have any bullying. I had a lot of really great groups of friends. I was very athletic, so I played a lot of sports. But um, I struggle to how, how, how I even explain this particular situation. Um, so when I was 12 years old, I would always walk to the bus stop every morning and there was always this group of older boys that weren't in school anymore. Um, so obviously like twenties, maybe 1920s. Um, and, and I remember I'm 12 at this point and I was just like, so surprised that they were paying attention to me and talking to me on my way to the bus stop that it was very flattering, right? I was looking I should mention, as many young women are, or young girls, I should say at this point, uh, people pleasers, right? We're, we're looking for people to like me. Um, you want people to not be mad at you. You want people to think you're cute and attractive, and especially 12, like I'm in puberty for a couple years by that point, right? So I'm like, oh my gosh, older boys are noticing me. I'm so cool. Um, that's obviously not what was going on. <laughs> and when you hear it as an adult, you're like, oh, what business the 20 year olds have to be flirting, talking to, paying attention to in that way, a 12 year old. Um, and of, of course I didn't have that thought. I just thought I'm like, yeah, I'm an amazing, like I'm pretty much an adult, right? I was a 12 year old who thought, you know, this is totally normal. But part of me also knew it, it wasn't okay because of course I wasn't going to run home and tell my parents that, you know these older boys were paying attention to me. So at first it really was just a little bit of what I now know to be grooming, right? What I now know to them to be testing the waters, kind of figuring out what, how they could communicate with me to get me to, you know, like feel safe with them, safe enough with them to break the rules, right? And, and it started to be, well, why don't you leave earlier for the bus stop? And then you come over to one of our houses right down the street. And at the time I was just like, how cool I get to hang out, you know, with these boys that I think are so cute and that like me and I'm going to get to go to their house before school. None of my friends are doing this like I'm cool. I must be so special. Um, and of course now I know that that, you know, that's not the case and they did lure me there. And that was when, um, gosh, for my entire sixth grade year from maybe November until the end of the year for summer, um, the vast majority of days, I would be lured over to um, one of the boys' houses in the morning and abused at that point. So, uh, and it was multiple boys. So that was, you know, my brain, I didn't like it. I didn't want to be there. Why I kept going, that's a difficult question to answer. I think, first of all, as a kid, I didn't have the tools to um, to navigate that situation. I was too scared to tell anyone, of course, because I was breaking the rules. I was going somewhere I wasn't supposed to be. So, of course, whatever happened to me must have been my fault, right? Um, and, you know, if I'm honest, I didn't believe that I, – I didn't understand that I was being sexually abused at that time. Um, there was nothing in my 12-year-old brain that thought that. I knew I didn't like it, but I never said no either very clearly, and that's kind of what you're taught you know, in your, in your health classes or in the talks that you hear as a kid about um, consent and things like that. Like, I didn't say no, so I guess, you know, I, I wasn't raped. I obviously wasn't sexually assaulted, right? That couldn't be what happened to me. Um, and I very much internalized it. So around that time, I started self-harming behaviors. 
And if you aren't aware, um, young adults who self-harm, there is an astronomical statistic from a study done by the University of Minnesota, actually, that says something along the lines of 82% of young adults who self-harm have been sexually abused. Um, And obviously that lined up for me at the time. I didn't know that or understand that. Um, But I was talking to my school counselors because at that time, I really was struggling mentally. Um, I didn't really understand it. So I was a perfect student, so my grades weren't really suffering. I maintained being an amazing athlete. But emotionally, I was, um, gosh, just all over the place, right? I mean, I had a lot of mood swings, which were really weird for that age. Um, And I just didn't feel comfortable ever. My anxiety was really high, I would say. Um, So... I'm talking to school counselors at that point, just in between classes or trying to get support um, because I could tell like I wasn't, things weren't feeling super great, um, but you know, it is what it is and I'm self-harming. So that's obviously not great. But at the time, like it's, it's all I have. It's all my developing brain could latch onto to kind of escape the, the pain that was showing up in my body that I just didn't understand. So That's from 12 to 13. I continued self-harming behaviors well into my young adult life. Um, I struggled with that into my early 20s, I would say. Um, And luckily they say now, not self-harming, so that's great. But it was definitely a difficult road. Once you start, it is a powerful coping mechanism, although be it not one that you want to be utilizing, it does work in the sense that it takes you out of that immediate excuse me, that immediate moment, that pain. Um, so these counselors in school are, are trying to help me at this age, 12 to 13. And, you know, I I did manage to finally trust one of them enough to share with them. You know, I had been self-harming. Um, you know, we brought in my parents for a conference at that time. And while I love my parents and they absolutely did the best that I could, they just had no idea. They were not prepared to handle this kind of situation. And it was also really left field for them because they were like, you know, what do you mean? My daughter is a happy, happy young girl. Like her grades are great. She plays all these sports. She has all these friends. Um, there was no external sign that something was really wrong with me internally. So... I shouldn't say wrong with me. That's probably, that's like some really harsh language that I could definitely look at um, how I talk about myself. But for the ease of conversation, things were not going great. So we had that conference. I did not get the support that I needed from my parents, although they did try. Um, so my counselors actually ended up just allowing me to continue to see them and talk about my self-harm behavior without continuously reporting it because it turned out you know, I, I needed an outlet. I needed somebody to help me navigate this situation. So they actually had someone come in from the University of Minnesota, which is how I learned about the studies that she was doing. And I actually kept up on them years later because they're fascinating to me. But she came in to do an interview on me as a young adult who self-harmed. And she, in this interview, asked me the question, have I ever been sexually abused? And at the time, I was pretty livid. I had a really strong emotional response to this question. I was like, no. Absolutely not. And I'm recalling all of these moments with these, um, I guess at the time with the boys before school, I hadn't quite reconciled that I had been abused as a very young child. I had the memories, but I also, again, my brain just didn't interpret that as abuse at the time. So I'm vehemently denying this. No, it's never happened to me. I have never been abused. No one's ever touched me. You know, like nothing like that has ever happened. 
And it's like, as I'm telling her this, I'm having the thoughts in my head, like about the situations that have occurred to me and what's happened to me, but I'm just not connecting them. I, I refused to believe, and I do believe at the state of my brain and, and the development that it was in as a young adult, it wasn't capable. I was not capable of understanding that I had been abused at that point, but I had a really strong emotional reaction. So she does the interview. She's a really nice lady. I feel a little bit, you know, like, ugh, after thinking about how I responded to her. Um, but chances are, because I had such a strong emotional response, the reason that she kept leaning into that question is she could tell there was something there, right? But I obviously wasn't, um, just wasn't in a place to understand that that's what was going on with me. So a couple years from from the time that I'm 13 to 16, I'm playing basketball every day down the street from my house at a park. Um, and a lot of the older boys that had been abusing me also played. And this is like a, a difficult situation for me because basketball was my life as a kid. Um, I was a great student and I loved school and I absolutely loved learning, but I was so good at sports, specifically basketball. And I played, I played every day, hours a day after school on the weekends, whenever I could play. And these older boys are probably one of the reasons that I was so good, just playing against um, people with such a higher skill level than me and learning from them every day over and over again was hugely beneficial. So I kept seeing these boys um, and a couple of them in particular who at the time had not participated in any of the abuse um, but were still around the boys, they knew what was going on. Um, they were privy to the information that was like the situation that was happening to me. Um, but we, we all, you know, kept seeing each other multiple times a day, day in, day out. I didn't really interpret that as a problem. I still was very much living in this mentality of I just wanted people to like me. I wanted to be worthy of older boys' attention. And I think probably we could do an entire episode, maybe we should do an entire episode on um, young girls feeling worthy and what it means to give young girls the idea of self-esteem and um, just giving them this idea that like your your worth is not tied up in whether or not people are attracted to you or like you in that way. But I hadn't learned that lesson yet, unfortunately. So I keep seeing these boys um, and essentially the grooming still continues. So some of the abuse has stopped um, some of it hasn't. <laughs> and so, but I keep seeing these boys over the span of that year, those few years, excuse me. Um, and one of them, I just, I had a huge crush on. I, I thought I was just enamored with. He had never physically um, or sexually abused me, I should say, but um, I don't know. I thought he was my friend. You know, I, I really trusted this man um, who was very much older than me. I mean, at this point, I'm you know, like when we first started playing basketball together, I'm 12, remember, and these guys are in their, their 20s. Um, so the grooming continues. I don't see it, obviously. Um, and I turned 16, and um, I, well, I was raped again at 16 by one of the boys who had never harmed me at that point, but I really thought was my friend. I thought was just a good person. And at that point, I... S I understood a little bit more that I was raped, but it was more coercion at that point, right? So there was still this gray area of me being unwilling to admit that I had been hurt in that way. Um, and also, I wanted to believe that this person was my friend, right? I had spent all of these developing years of my life thinking 
this person cared about me and was rooting for me and was helping me be successful at a sport that I loved. Um, and I just couldn't understand that he would, that he would hurt me in some way. So yeah, that was really hard. That was, <laughs> that was probably one of the harder situations for me to come to terms with because I realized at the time that perhaps what I thought was friendship was really just someone trying to get something from me. Um, and of course, it's no surprise that that person waited to assault me until I was 16, which is the legal age of consent in Minnesota. Um, so definitely like a planned action uh, from that point, which is really just, just difficult, really disgusting for me to think about. Um, so I still stay in contact with these people again because I... <laughs> I just, you know, I say it now as an adult and I'm like, Jesus, what was I doing with my life? Um, but again, I'm a kid. I'm a kid. I'm a kid who doesn't understand what's going on. I'm a kid with no self-esteem. I'm a kid at this point who has self-harming behaviors. I also then picked up um, eating disorders. So I probably had, I should say disordered eating. I really don't like to label things so harshly, but um, I... I started disordered eating behaviors younger than 16, but I really stepped into what I would call like proper disorder eating around that time. So I, I was raped again at 16 and I, um, it started off with anorexia bulimia. So I, I definitely just starved myself, would throw up anything that I did manage to eat and mind you, I'm, I'm still an athlete. I have practiced before school, after school sometimes, tournaments on the weekends, games. I'm working out all the time, and I'm not eating. So I was at uh, my lowest weight, about 98 pounds. Um, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> throughout my entire life, I was a thicker person. I was a muscular person. I don't have the build of a very thin human being, even when I'm in great shape. Um, so 98 pounds was not what what I should have been <laughs> definitely smaller than I needed to be. Um, but I was really just reaching for control, right? So many disordered eating behaviors are around, you know, looking for control, looking to numb out, looking to feel something different than what you're feeling. Uh, and I obviously didn't feel like I had control, right? Because at the time I'm, I'm being abused so often, so frequently, so violently that I don't understand why, I, you know, my body is like, oh, my body is not even my body, right? So really was looking for ways of control. So eating disorder behavior, disorder eating behavior starts really in earnest around 16. Um, and, you know, it becomes dangerous. But you think, why didn't anybody notice? I mean, I worked out all the time. I was constantly doing things. I was busy. I was never really home for meals. Um, it, it wasn't hard to, you know, of course I got really thin. My Some of my coaches had mentioned it to me, but at the same time I was like, no, nah, I'm just working out extra. Like I just feel faster this way. I feel stronger this way. It was just really easy to, as an athlete, it was really easy to brush off any signs that something was wrong to anybody else around me. Um, I had a best friend at that time who also, we did everything together, and that includes um, disordered eating behaviors together. So it was this kind of like closeness that her and I had developed that we bonded over. I, I was so desperate to have someone who understood what it felt like, what I was going through, even though we never talked about it explicitly. Um, just being able to bond in that way was was powerful. 
toxic, again, not healthy, but at the time powerful and, and frankly, probably what I needed to move through that time. So, so now I'm 16, 17, 18, and now I start in on the um, numbing behaviors, the addictive behaviors, the drug use, the drinking. Um, I had been, I had drank a few times before that maybe, but nothing in excess. And then I, I mean, I really started like just drinking, um, binge drinking like kids do, but so many of the kids are doing it that you're like, I don't have a problem. Nothing is wrong, you know? So I spend, again, I'm still holding up my grades, still playing sports. Um, things, things look okay for me. Like I feel okay about it. Um, but that period of time was definitely using, um, lots of alcohol, some cocaine, even at a young age, which I just think, gosh, I'm glad I <laughs> didn't do that for very long and my brain was able to uh, recover from that. And then uh, marijuana use, obviously, I think lots of kids pair marijuana and alcohol together in that way. Um, so through that time period, that's what's going on. I should mention too, uh, at 16, um, one of the boys that had abused me, I say boys because I was a girl and I was a young girl and it's hard for me to say man, but I guess I should use correct language here. One of the men that abused me um, when I was 12 came back into my life around 6, 17, yeah, around there. Um, and we started a relationship together. So mind you, he had been grooming me for some years before that. Um, but we had a secret relationship, obviously, because my parents would have murdered me and him if he had found out that I was seeing anyone that wasn't my age or really seeing anyone. My parents were not like, you should be dating. Um, so again, it was this, this secret that I had, uh, I was still desperate for people to like me. I, I, again, we had previous many, many years of being groomed. Um, but there was a lot of lying, a lot of uh, just not great behavior. As you can imagine, somebody who would assault a child is doesn't make a great partner. <laughs> we weren't together for very long, um, but it had a profound impact on future relationships, right? And it just kept piling on trauma after trauma because, again, I didn't really like this person. I didn't even particularly want to be in a relationship with this person, but I didn't want to I didn't want to believe, I, gosh, it's so difficult. <laughs> it's so difficult to look at that and, and to, to say it out loud. But ultimately at the time I was just like, um, you know, you're, you're not supposed to be alone. You, you know, again, I had this idea that my value was tied up in having a partner and having people like me. Um, so it was a deeply rooted thing that I grew up like just internalizing. Um, but anyways, um, so that happened around 16 and I ended it up just sort of um, moving away from that situation because I ended up finding that he was like, at the time I understood what a sexual predator was now, even though I didn't internalize my own younger abuse, but I had found out that he, um, oh, this is a difficult sentence to say, but he had been raping um, 12, 13, 14 year olds and he ended up being arrested. Um, so that kind of opened my eyes. Maybe the first time to the idea that like, had I been, abused really like had I been raped had I been sexually assaulted at this at the, in these younger years but I wasn't I still wasn't ready I was unwilling to look at that with a critical lens so I um you know moved on I actually met a really wonderful person I was working at Target in the mornings and I met a really wonderful human being who I spent years of my life with who was 
and tell my husband, like the only decent man to have entered my life outside of my family. <laughs> and so um, it was like a huge relief. It was this crazy feeling to be in a relationship with someone my own age who was like decent and loving and kind. And um, I, I didn't understand even. I actually had difficulty accepting being in a relationship uh, that was like that. So get on that. We do all that. I actually start birth control when I'm 16. Um, and that seems super young, but I also had, you know, I had debilitating periods and that's kind of the answer to everyone. Um, <laughs> I think, okay, I'll say that a little bit more carefully. Um, when I was, when I was a kid, I had really debilitating periods and the go-to treatment at the time and probably still today was to prescribe birth control. Um, but instead of going on the pill, I went on the shot because I was like, really busy person doing a bunch of things. And I could not imagine that I would remember to take a pill every day. So I went on the Devo shot. Um, as a person who was already kind of like riddled with trauma, for lack of a better term, um, getting on hormonal birth control was probably not the best idea. But nobody cautioned me. Nobody told me that it was not a great idea. Or maybe if I had mental health symptoms going on already, that going on hormonal birth control could exacerbate those symptoms. That was just not a conversation that was given to me, unfortunately. So around that time, my mental health symptoms really started to uh, increase. Um, and I didn't make the connection, unfortunately. <laughs> Looking back now, it seems really obvious, but I just didn't make the connection. So I'm in this really like appropriate relationship and I am on birth control and now I'm like really struggling with with increased self-harm behaviors. Um, I had sobered up from any drug use, but I was still drinking underage and the, on occasion, but I was definitely doing it in a binge style. It wasn't like, oh, let's have a beer sometimes. It was like, let's get, you know, drunk as possible so I don't have to feel my body. <laughs> so... Um, I'm really struggling. I graduate school. I graduate with honors. Uh, I was really proud of myself. I was really going through it at that point. And I, um, enroll at the U of M to take a bunch of online classes and I'm in a tech school as well. And I'm like, I'm going to be, I'm going to go into nursing. I have this plan. This is going to be great. Um, uh, 19, I was admitted um, against my will, I guess, forcibly admitted into a psychiatric stay at 19, um, due to suicidal behavior. I had pretty much just decided, I, I guess I couldn't do it anymore. Um, I did a hospital stay there for five days and I came out, um, heavily medicated. So that was my first time being put on drugs. I was on anti-seizure medication. I was on anti-psychotic medication, um, just a disclaimer, I'm not here to shame anyone who is on medications. And if they work for you, I am so happy for you, genuinely pleased that there are an avenue that are, you're finding support from. Um, that was not my experience. Right? So I had gone in desperate and essentially just giving up on life. And I had come out and these medications were just uh, making things worse, right? So um, whether or not I just didn't find the right medication or whether or not medication just wasn't right for me um, is definitely a point that could be debated, but I, I believe that it wasn't right for me. Um, I Many of you, I, I think if you've heard my previous uh, podcast interview with Dr. Mel on the Inspire Life podcast, have heard me talk about, I throw around a number in the 30s 
of different medications that I tried from about 19 to 25. Um, I had a total of six inpatient hospital stays during that time, countless outpatient programs, countless therapy visits, um, psychiatrist visits. Uh, I was really unwell. I had some suicide attempts, um, unsuccessful. I'm very grateful for obviously now. Uh, it was, it was a really, really dark time. Um, I think all of the abuse leading up to my early, I guess I should say late teen years, early 20 years, um, completely unresolved. No, no, like no, no healing was done on any of those things. In fact, I hadn't even acknowledged most of them yet. And then I step into adding in hormonal birth control, which they kind of, you know, again, exacerbated some of the symptoms. And then I got on medications, which made things worse, but then you have to get on more medications for the side effects of those medications. Um, it was, it was just, it was a really dark time in my life. Um, I imagine if I had more memories of being a kid that I would describe my younger years the same, but I just don't remember them as well. But I do pretty vividly remember, you know, the, the 19 to the mid twenties. Um, during that time, I met my now wonderful husband online playing world of Warcraft. Woo nerds. (laughs) Um, we played uh, world of Warcraft together online for, almost eight years by the time that we met in person. So he lived in Japan. I'm in Minnesota. Um, so we did develop this amazing friendship long before there was anything there. I had always had like a secret internet crush on him um, <laughs> that he didn't know about, but I was like, oh, he sounds so cute. Um, so I met him in real life uh, out in, in Japan for that matter. I flew to Japan to meet him in real life when I was, I had just turned 23 um, so I flew to Japan. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I like skipped a whole abusive relationship in there. Probably the most difficult one to talk about. I wonder if that's why I went to skip it. Um, I After I had that kind of like high school relationship with that wonderful human being, the one nice man in my life besides my family, um, you know, it just didn't, obviously just didn't pan out to be long-term. We're actually still really good friends and I do deeply care about him, but we just weren't great partners. Um, so I met somebody who seemed just like the most wonderful man. Um, he definitely wasn't. <laughs> he was, he was not, I don't want to, I don't like to call people bad people. I don't think that there are bad people. I think that there are people who have gone through their own lives, um, experienced things that were difficult for them and then didn't know how to process those things and ended up perhaps behaving in a way that we would label bad in, in air quotes. Um, but he was, he was incredibly abusive. Of course it didn't start off that way. He was the literal perfect human being. It's, it's like a cliche story. Um, you could see it in like a lifetime movie, (laughs) but he, he was so perfect in the beginning and I felt so drawn to him and we had all the same likes and he played video games and he, um, yeah, it's just everything about him was perfect. And that's, that's a red flag in itself <laughs> because nobody, no, not one person on this earth is walking around with just being absolutely perfect for months on end. Right. So a few months into that relationship, uh, it really started off with a lot of I think probably gaslighting behavior was the first thing that I noticed. If you're not familiar with gaslighting, it's this idea where somebody 
um, makes you question your own reality or your own sanity by essentially lying to you about things that you know happened and they're like, that's not what happened. Or um, they're essentially manipulating you whether or not it's intentional is up for debate <laughs> with a certain person to person, but it's definitely a behavior people use. Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it works really efficiently because when you start to make somebody question their own reality, you can't trust your own intuition. And when you cut yourself off from your own intuition, you rely on that other person to describe your reality. And it happens subtly. It's not like at least for me, it did, I should say. It, it happened subtly. It wasn't like, you know, day two of our relationship, he was like, that's not happened. Like, you're stupid. Like, that's not how this works, right? So over time, there's a small amount of, oh, that's silly. That's not how it happened. Like, don't you remember? It was like this. And then you're like, oh, uh, I don't. That's so weird. Like, well, whatever, I guess it's a not unimportant thing. So I'll just agree with you, right? Because you're like, oh, it's like some silly thing that happened at a party that's not relevant at all. And it started really slowly. Um, so we started a lot of gaslighting. Um, and then a lot of um, like what I believe to be lying. But of course, he would have his way around um, making me believe again in another gaslighting type way. Like I'm not lying to you. You're just crazy. Um, the labeling of me started really soon. Well, you're on all these medications. You're the one who has to go see doctors. You know, I don't have any of those problems, so it must be you. And I really internalized that. Um, it wasn't hard for me to internalize that. I really looked at that as, well, he's this great, amazing person. Everybody loves him. That's why I got into a relationship with him. He's so amazing. This has to be me. I'm just losing my mind, right? So... um. I don't trust myself. I don't believe anything that's coming up for me. And then the controlling behaviors start. The They're subtle again in the beginning. I don't like it. Oh, I really love it when you wear stuff like that. And you think, gosh, what a compliment. That feels so good. And again, it's not in by itself. If your partner has said to you, I love it when you wear X and that's all it is. There's nothing inherently bad about that. So just throwing that out there. Um, but of course, in combination with other things, and then it becomes, it's not just, I really like it when you wear those things. It's, um, why are you wearing that? You know, I don't like it. Um, and it's just, you know, again, you hear it and then you, as, as a person who's already in this relationship where you don't trust yourself and you just want to be loved again, you want him to care about you. You don't want him to be mad at you. So you know, you start dressing differently, you start eating differently, you only listen to the kind of music around him that he wants you to, but you just think, no big deal, like you care about this person, so you want to honor his preferences. Um, men talk a lot about preferences and saying, well, I just have a preference, and that's fine. It's fine to have a preference for something. What isn't fine is to exert that preference over another human being so they fit into it, Right. A preference shouldn't be a need that you require of your partner. It's just, oh, nice. She's wearing her hair the way I like it today. Isn't that wonderful, right? Like it should be that sort of um, level, I believe. But that's obviously not what was going on. So uh, <laughs> so I'm in this abusive relationship physically and not physically yet, I should say, excuse me, emotionally. And um, 
It's, it's, it's again, a really dark time. Uh, I, I think he starts having an affair with another woman that he used to see, but I'm not certain. So I just keep asking him. I'm like, hey, you know, like I just, these things aren't lining up. And then I really start to not trust myself because then, you know, he's really coming out. You're just jealous. Like, I can't believe that this is the kind of person you are. Um, so then one night I'm, uh, we didn't always work the same schedule. So I got to his place a little bit earlier than he did. And he got back. Um, and he was dropped off, I saw at the window, by this woman that I think he's having an affair with. And it really, like, just a light bulb goes off in my head. I'm like, ah, like, he lied about where he was. I have to say something. And so I did. I said something. And, and he, this was the first time that he harmed me physically. Um, the first of many times that he harmed me physically. I deeply wish that I could tell you that he hit me and I left. But I think that there are um, many women out there who can relate with the idea that that's just not how it works, unfortunately. many For many women, it does. And I am so happy for them and so proud of them to have been in a space in their lives where they were able to walk away from that. I just wasn't there. Um, and again, after months of of being manipulated to believe that I'm not worthy, I can't trust myself, I'm losing my mind, I'm crazy, I don't know anything. Um, you know, so so the physical abuse starts. I tried to leave numerous times, um, but he, it just didn't work out, right? For, for one reason or another, I got pulled back in. Again, you have to remember this charming, charismatic person that I fell in love with originally, um, was still able to come out, right? Was still able to pull me back in. So I'm in this abusive relationship and all this time I'm still playing World of Warcraft with my friends online. It's actually the only outlet that I still have. At this point, I've stopped hanging out with any of the friends I had in real life um, with any real regularity because, again, if he didn't want to go, I wasn't really allowed to go. Um, I mean, of course I could go, but there would be consequences for me for me doing things that he didn't want me to do, and I knew that, right? So again, that subtle way of controlling me was, it's not that he said I couldn't hang out with my friends, but if I did go hang out with my friends, it would be met with emotional or physical abuse, if not both. So you just kind of learn, right? You're, you learn to avoid that, and you're like, why would I, why would I go do this thing that's going to cause me to be abused? Um and again, you see the language that I use there is is that of me being in an abused relationship. I just said, if I do this, I'll get abused. So it, essentially like saying it's my fault because I did this behavior I knew that would make him mad, which of course now I know is absolutely just ridiculous, but that's the state of mind that I was in. So stay in that relationship for a good bit. And, and um, luckily, um, remember that wonderful human being from my high school relationship, he and I are still very good friends at this time. And I reach out and say, I need a place to stay that this person doesn't know where it is. And he had no idea. I never shared again, this, um, this partner that was abusive was incredibly, um, I guess, gosh, what's the word I want to use here? Um, jealous. <laughs> Maybe is the best way to put it. He's a very jealous person. And so I never told him about my my previous partners or anything like that and didn't know where they were. So I pick up, I, I move all my stuff to this place that he doesn't know where I am. I quit my job. 
uh, which was fine. Anyhow, mentally and emotionally, I, I needed a different job, but even still, it was kind of abrupt, uh, right? So I'm I'm playing this hiding game for a long time, um, and that's where I really develop over. I mean, I guess it's a couple over the span of a couple years at this point, but I'm able to spend more time with my online friends again, playing the video games that I really enjoy. And these are my people, you know, like these are the people that I really care about. Um, so I really feel like I blossomed <laughs> into that time as much as I could. Again, I'm still emotionally struggling. I'm still on all these medications. I'm probably still in and out of the hospital stays at this point. Um, but I really developed my relationship with my current husband, Scott, and I just know that I love this dude. I've never seen him before in my life, but I just have this deep idea that we're in love, um, and I end up, you know, kind of confiding in him, I suppose, about the difficulties that are going on, and, um, you know, like, we share a kind of bond that we both have over, like, previous um, coping mechanisms using drugs and just trauma and things like that. And we really bond. And I decide like, I, I want to meet this dude in person. And so, excuse me. So we, um, we plan this trip for me to go out to Japan. And I um, unfortunately, then start getting messages randomly. Oh, I should have said I changed my phone number. I mean, I did the whole shebang. <laughs> you know, like I did all the things that you can do when you're trying to to disappear from another person's life. Um, so I start getting messages again. This person has, has found out where I am, who I am, or I guess not who I am, but what my how to contact me. Um, and so, of course, like I'm panicked again. Like now I've officially just re-entered back into this abusive relationship. So I'm not supposed to be leaving for Japan for some weeks at that point. And I reach out to Scott and I say that this is what's going on. Um, he calls the airline and like just what just what a what a wonderful what a wonderful human being I'm married to. Um, calls the airline and says, I need to change this flight. Um, he pays for the change of flight, which is a good amount of money. And gets me on a flight like days later essentially I think it was like a week later and I can happily say that I went to Japan it was an amazing time I met the man I knew I was going to marry from the moment that I saw him um we came back together and we did get married so yay <laughs> that was really wonderful and I can report that minus a few random emails out of desperation to try to connect again in some really crazy manipulative way I have not heard um, or seen this person that I was in this abusive relationship with since then so that is a huge huge win um, but I still came back to this country after Japan um, even though I was there for some months, I came back and immediately was like reminded about all these terrible things that were going on. And, and I re-entered a, a, a space where, you know, um, I never dealt with any of this trauma and I just kept piling it on. So um, I get married to Scott at 24, which when I look back at it now, 10 years ago, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like I was a baby who gets married at 24. Um but I did, and I'm so happy to report that that worked out well and that um, I, I really wouldn't change it. I could not imagine being with another human being. I, I, I just, I really lucked out. I deeply believe that I won the lottery in that regard. So I, I wouldn't recommend everybody getting married at 24, but it worked out okay for me. <laughs> um, so I get married. Um, 
And around 25 years old, I'm tired of struggling with my mental health medications. I really, truly believe they're making me worse. And so, but I can't find a doctor who will help me get off of them. Uh, And so I just decide to do that. (laughs) So I get off of my medications. Um, Things get better for a while. Mind you, I have an IUD now. I've been, at this point in my life, I've had an IUD since I was like 18. So again, I've been on hormonal birth control now for almost 10 years at that point. Um, And then a few years later, I get really um, physically sick. I start having huge bouts of dizziness and nausea, um, ear pain, high-pitched ringing in my ears. I would be, the fatigue would be so intense that I would be bedridden. Uh, The dizziness was so bad I couldn't drive. Um, It happened suddenly. It just happened. It happened one day when I was driving Scott home from work. Um, And I will never forget that moment because I lost, I shouldn't say lost. (laughs) I really try to look at this time in my life a little bit differently. Um, but I, I guess I essentially um, had two years of intense growth <laughs> that were so difficult because uh, nobody knew what was going on with me. Um, there were diagnoses being thrown around that didn't really quite align, but that's what we were working with. I had um, surgeries, really intensive surgery, where they like drilled into my skull and did inner ear surgery and um, medications and all that good stuff. I just want to take a moment too to caveat and say that uh, at no point in this bit of the story am I trying to um, hate on the medical system. Like I believe it. I'm happy it exists. I think it's a fantastic system to help with acute care. I think some things, especially for women, especially women of color, but women in general, are uh, dismissed and denied and uh, belittled in the medical system that we have right now. And there's also not a lot of research in the current medical system to help women. It's, you know, most of the medical studies or the treatment plans or medications even that are done are done on predominantly white men. Um, Women are not, there was a woman, oh gosh, I need to remember her name and I'm not going to, but there is a doctor that does studies on the differences between men and women. And she said this thing that I loved. She said, um, women are not tiny men. Because we're not, right? As much as we like to say that we're equals, and in certain regards, we are. We absolutely are equals. We're capable and strong just as men are. But our physiology is different. It's very different. And so to not have any of these things done about, um, like studies and medication trials and things like that, done on more women, um, the treatment that we're getting in the regular medical care system isn't necessarily always what women need it to be. And again, sometimes it's great, and I am really grateful that it exists. But for me at this time, it just didn't pan out the way that I needed it to. Um, so I did all those surgeries. I, you know, did everything I was supposed to be doing, lost a bunch of weight, and, like, exercised all the time, and uh, nothing was helping. You know, I, I spent most of my days in bed uh, crying all the time. Um, I... Like I said, I couldn't shower by myself, so Scott became my primary caregiver during this time. Um, that was, I was, I was definitely suicidal again during those years. I just, it's not a life that I felt like was worth living, and I thought that it was going to be the rest of my life. I thought, you know, nothing was going to help me um, because, again, I had tried all of the things that were presented to me that I knew about at that time. Um, 
So Scott and I decided at this point that like we'd had enough of <laughs> the United States. We'd had enough of the the situation that I was having. Like maybe just getting away from it all and trying somewhere different would be um, the answer to our problems. <laughs> so we picked up. We got rid of most of, we sold most of our things, gave away a bunch of our things, um, and moved to Nova Scotia, Canada, where we had a few friends um, that we knew from playing video games again. Because again, remember, this is our community. Like these people are our people. We've known them for years and years. And they were nice enough to put us up in their home. Um, that didn't turn out great. Uh, <laughs> so really, um, Again, like I say, I don't like to call people bad people because I don't believe in that. I don't believe that people are bad people. Um, but I do uh, think that people are troubled people. I think that people don't have all of their ducks in a row and that can show up in their behaviors. Um, so unfortunately, I was it was a, a husband and a wife couple that we were going to move in with for a while while we got on our feet and got jobs in Canada and finished out our visas. My husband was a software engineer at the time. So getting visas in Canada was actually going to be like a really simple process for us because their um, tech workers and healthcare workers are really sought after. So we were like, sweet, we have skills to be in this country. Um, so it was supposed to be a really easy process. We'd be there for, you know, six months, eight months, something like that with them. Um, before we could find our own place and, and um, secure our visas. But the uh, the gentleman, the husband and that couple, um, I, I mean, I knew that he had always had feelings for me. There was some stuff going on before that, but I always thought it was just like some weird internet crush thing that I kind of just like put off. Um, but I guess it was a little bit more than that. He had developed some pretty serious feelings for me that I did not reciprocate. <laughs> and... Um, he ended up uh, sexually abusing me over the course of the months that we were there um, and sort of like pinning my husband and I against each other in that regard, um, sort of like convincing. It was just a really difficult time. And Scott and I, it was probably the most challenging time in our marriage, but not because we felt differently about it each other, but because I, this was, um, I could see my husband really thriving in this environment and it was doing so much good for him and I hadn't seen him sort of this excited about anything in a while and so there was this kind of pressure to not share with him what was going on because I didn't want to essentially take away um, all of the happiness that I saw him enjoying the time that he had us it was a, it was a different kind of life in in that um, Canadian province that we had never really experienced before. And it was beautiful. And I truly believe if this experience um, that I had had there hadn't happened, that we may very well still be in Canada. But I believe that, you know, the universe was kind of helping me out in some way. I'm taking this really difficult time in my life and looking at it through a lens that said, if that didn't happen, um, I would have never ended up coming back to the States and meeting Dr. Mel and Jess and Michael and, you know, really like, and Dr. Aaron too, I should say, like I would have never met this community that I have now um, at Inspire Life. And I really look at that as these are my people now. You know, I, I talked a lot about, um, I don't play video games anymore. I don't have that community of people and I have refound a new community that really aligns with who I am. So I try to look at are leaving of Canada to to be like this needed to happen. I, I needed something to happen, and perhaps it could have happened differently in in, in the less traumatizing way, maybe. But that's where we're at. <laughs> so, um, I finally become brave enough after six months or so to tell Scott, I, I can't do this. We can't stay here. We have to go. 
Um, at this point, we've kind of put all of our resources into this Canadian thing, right? We're trying to be here. It's expensive visas and, and work, all this stuff. It costs a lot of money. And so we've drained a lot of our resources. Um, we were able to connect with a girlfriend that I knew for a long time in Maryland. Um, and she was able to essentially give us a place to escape to. Um, and I was able to leave that situation safely. And then I was really able to start processing that with Scott. Cause again, he had no idea <laughs> that any of the things that were happening to me in Canada were happening to me. Um, so that gets me, and I'm still like having mental or sorry, physical health symptoms at that point, as well as mental health symptoms, because it took me till about that time. And I'm 28, 29 years old when we're living there. Um, and I, I realized finally that I have been abused in my previous years. So it took me all until my late 20s to realize, holy shit, I've been like sexually abused since I was four years old, pretty much on. <laughs> and that's like not a great, that's not a great revelation. Um, so I'm still having mental health symptoms as well. The physical health symptoms aren't any better. Um, I shouldn't say any better, but they're not great. So I... We moved on to Maryland for a little while. We get back on our feet. We work our asses off to, you know, restock our savings account. And um, Maryland was wonderful. We lived right by the beach. I absolutely enjoyed that time. It was it was similar to Japan, the idea that I was escaping something dangerous to me, you know, kind of moving into a safer space. Um, so, but unfortunately, Maryland has a lot of, like, income inequality issues, and it's really difficult to afford to live in Maryland unless you have a ton of money. And we didn't really want to stay in a super, super tiny rundown apartment in that situation. So we got back on our feet and we came back to Minnesota. Um, and that was when, again, my health symptoms like kind of skyrocketed again, which now that I look at it makes a lot of sense because this is the place, you know, this state is the place where I associate all of this kind of terrible trauma from my past happening to me. Um, so... So my husband, Scott, thank God, is just, you know what, like maybe we should try something totally different. And I'm so appreciative. I remember this conversation so clearly. Um, and he was like, I, I'm 30, I think, at this point. And he says to me, like, you just, we got to try something different for you. Like, you deserve to try something different. And so I um, go to an integrative medicine doctor. I start seeing Mel. My physical symptoms alleviate. I... You know, I still do, of course, struggle, but I finally started realizing that was when I started my journey of understanding that maybe my physical health symptoms were due to um, my my trauma, right? My mental health symptoms were feeding my physical health symptoms, and I had not done anything to try to rectify those. So I start seeing um, an internal family systems doctor, which if you don't know what internal family systems is, I'm actually going to do a whole episode on that with Scott because that's what he's in school for. He's about to start his practicum for that, and that's kind of the modality that he'll really be using. Um, and so we'll definitely touch base on that if you've never heard of it. It is a fantastic form of therapy. I also started ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, um, and that's exactly what it sounds like. You ingest ketamine, and then you are able to kind of work through your different like really dark, terrible places, but in a, in a much safer way because it kind of numbs down your amygdala. It turns off that fear response. So you're able to navigate through those situations. Um, so if you've made it with me this long, <laughs> you're up to my current time and I cannot thank you enough for letting me share all of that. I mean, it, it's, it's an incredibly vulnerable, difficult story to tell. I apologize if it was a little bit all over the place, um, I have notes, but I also knew that this was going to be 
harder to, to go through. Um, so if you've made it all the way through this with me, this is kind of the part where I'll start just touching base a little bit on um, the things that I've been talking about just in the last few minutes here. What like helped me move away from all of this difficultness? And I will not lie to you. I am still actively on this journey. I am not a person who is walking around feeling like, yep, uh, all that shit's behind me and I'm definitely fine with it. Um, I have come and like an enormous amount of distance has been covered in the, in a positive direction, I believe, in, you know, and just in growing and healing, but I'm definitely still properly on this journey. Um, but I will say that I, I hardly ever <laughs> feel dizzy. Um, my nausea is almost non-existent. Uh, I'm able to obviously shower and drive and I work now and I have like a life again, um, and I feel like I'm finally stepping into this idea of really taking my power back. That has been the last few years of my life since I started working with Dr. Mel and the team and um, and my therapist and doing all of these things. Um, yoga, obviously, I just totally skipped over that. Like I went to yoga school and got a trauma-informed yoga certification because um, that was another hugely beneficial piece in my healing. If you have not heard about trauma-informed yoga, talk about it a little bit in some previous episodes, but it's really just about um, staying with your body through difficult feelings and feeling safe to move through those feelings, paying attention to your body in a way that's like, God, what do you need from me? Like, how can I help you? It's having a conversation with your body through breath work, through asana, through poses. Um, and so that's been hugely beneficial to me. So I would highly recommend looking at uh, if like if you're a person who heard any bit of this story and thought, man, there's a little bit of truth or I have a little bit of that or I feel like I'm struggling with mental health symptoms or physical health symptoms. Um, again, your story doesn't have to be what my story is for these strategies to be helpful. I wholeheartedly believe in obviously the obvious stuff, right? Like putting good food in your body and, you know, trying to be kind and compassionate to yourself. These are really important bits. Um, I shouldn't gloss over that one. Actually, I, I'd love to take a moment just to talk about the, the difference in how I feel physically and mentally every day when I put conscious effort into being kind to myself. A lot of that is the basis of internal family systems, self-love, being kind to all the different parts that exist in you. Um, and I I cannot underscore enough how important that has been to my own journey of healing. So in combination with those therapies, with chiropractic care, with um, yoga, with breath work, I've really begun this journey of taking my power back. Um, like I said, I'm still definitely on it. <laughs> I still um, struggle. There are days that are really hard. I still have moments where I don't feel safe. And I think that that makes sense, right? Given given my past and feeling these, um, almost having nothing to reach back to, to understand what safety is in my own body, I'm having to cultivate that now. And that's a long road. It's an incredibly difficult journey. It's a journey that feels really great to be on though, right? It feels so much different than just essentially flailing around in my own traumatized state and just constantly spewing my trauma out one way or the other because I wasn't able to 
um, I couldn't even look at it. I couldn't touch it. I couldn't even acknowledge it again until just maybe, you know, 28, I'm 33 now. Um, so I really, I want to just call out that if there's anybody out here that's hearing like, I, you know, I have abuse in my, any kind of abuse or any kind of mental health um, struggles or eating disorders, even in your past. And, and it's something that you're still holding on to. Like it is not, it's not a permanent battle. Human beings are not static, right? We, we grow whether we want to or not. <laughs> we're, we're moving, we're growing, we're changing. It is what it means to be human. Um, so there is nothing, there is nothing about this journey that, you know, I, I wouldn't do it again <laughs> if I didn't have to, but I wouldn't change it. Ultimately, I've become an immensely empathetic human being who wants to devote my entire life into helping other people grow and heal from whatever it is in their own lives that they feel that they need to do so. Now, again, this was a difficult episode for me to record, and I really want to extend my gratitude into you holding the space and staying with me for this episode. I know it's a longer one, but I did want to just touch base at the end here for some of the things broadly to kind of at least move out of that kind of darker space and move into a space that says, hey, you know, there is there is light. There is beneficial things that I'm utilizing now every day in my life that make me happy to be alive, that make me excited to think about what a future will be like when I do really embody safety and security throughout my whole being. Um, I'm, I'm like, feel a little bit raw. I feel a little bit open, um, but I feel really proud of myself. And hopefully this serves. I really hope that you come out of this episode feeling empowered to share your own story in whatever avenue makes sense to you, perhaps writing it down or sharing it with a close loved one or friend. Um, there is incredible reclamation of power in speaking your truth. Um, thank you again for letting me speak mine. I just want to uh, really let you all know that I am grateful to be here. And I'm for for once in my life in the last few years, happy to be alive. So if you're in a dark spot, you can get here too. I'm not special. I didn't, I don't have any weird superpowers. I like to say, you know, like I made it through a difficult life and I came out on the other side and I'm like, shit, I have so much life left to live and I'm really pumped about it. So just thank you all so much for tuning into the Project Lioness podcast where again, we're here to guide you towards reclaiming your power, inspiring you to purpose your very own purpose, and ultimately invite you to play all out in life. And until next time, keep rising, keep roaring, and keep inspiring. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining the Project Linus podcast. Did you find value in today's episode? Help us impact the lives of others by sharing this podcast with someone you know who would resonate and benefit from the Project Linus message. Excited to hear more? We invite you to subscribe on whatever platform you're tuning in on. And we'd be so grateful for you to leave us a review about what you enjoy most as well as what you'd like to hear more of. Thank you so much for all of your support. Sincerely yours in power, purpose, and play. Dr. Mel with the Project Lioness podcast. Keep rising, keep roaring, and keep inspiring.